I'm Jack Moylan, and you're listening to Let's Talk Business, a podcast geared towards young professionals served with a side of witty commentary. At Lutz, we rally around the mantra, make light, meaning be lighthearted, illuminate solutions, and create energy. We hope this episode will do just that. Let's make the complex simple. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Business. Today, we're talking about resilience and resilience skills. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, licensed marriage and family therapist, Kristen McDermott, creator of the McDermott Method, as well as you know, writer of a book, It Takes Two Minutes to Shift Your Mindset and Build Resilience. We also have Lisa Strutzel with us, who runs our family office practice here at Lutz, who has introduced us to Kristen. So Kristen, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I'll let Lisa go ahead and explain to us how you guys met and and maybe why it is that you guys know each other and, and, and how it fits into the family office practice. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. So I have been studying and teaching resilience for 20 years now. I didn't really mean to. I was just happy with my marriage and family therapy practice, just having couples and individuals and families. But I got invited to go into the oncology department when I lived in Colorado. And, you know, as much as I thought that is going to be really depressing, I'm not sure that's my calling. It turned out to be the most meaningful work I ever did. But also it turned out to be just a really good fit for me because people really wanted tools. Like when someone was dealing with a cancer diagnosis, whether that was the patient or the family member, they wanted skills and tools. They didn't want to sign up for you know, years of a long-term therapy relationship. And so I ended up developing this resilience training curriculum out of my time working in Aspen and the Aspen Valley Hospital with people with cancer in their families. And so I just became hooked on the idea that you can actually teach people skills and it doesn't take very long and you can actually improve how they feel about their lives. But, you know, even though it started in cancer, it was never about cancer. It was always about resilience. So as soon as I could, I started teaching the same skills and tools to different populations. So I worked with Navy SEALs. I worked with LAPD. I worked with corporate executives and at-risk kids in inner city LA and and actually highly privileged kids at Duke University. So basically, I didn't really even mean for my life to take this turn, but I find it so rewarding to be able to teach little bite-sized skills and have people tell me that they actually use them. So that's where we are. So in Aspen, correct me if I'm wrong, you started a nonprofit, right? For, yes. for helping people deal with cancer and the way, you know, their, their journey, I guess, through that and their experience with coming to terms with death. I read a little bit about it, but I mean, can you touch base a little bit on that? Yeah, that actually still exists. It's really a wonderful nonprofit and it, it does two things. It provides counseling services because, you know, going to a therapist is not inexpensive. And so it provides counseling services for free to people who can't afford it. And also about counseling about illness like cancer, but also grief. And then we've really even morphed into just any really disruptive life challenge. So it's fantastic because people get real help and they also get volunteer services. So people will bring them meals or people will, you know, sweep their front lawn. So it's just Aspen is a really nice, small community. So it was just a way Mm of, you know, helping people who are in crisis. Right. Very cool. Well, Lisa, can you maybe fill us in on how this ties in with family office practice? How you guys met? Sure. Thanks, Jack. 
Thank you for letting me be on the program and introduce you to Kristen. And I first heard Kristen speak at the beginning of COVID isolation. And it was something that I it really resonated with me. I loved her positive message. I honestly did not know that you could build resilience. I thought you were either resilient or you were not resilient. So <laughs> I love that you can build it. I, and because it resonated with me, I knew it would with my clients. Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because that ties in and I deal with high net worth individuals and their families and money doesn't mean you're going to be happier than the next guy. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean that you don't need resilience. Actually, you need more resilience to sustain your wealth as a family. Sure. And for families to sustain your wealth as a family, uh -huh. you need to, you know, have collective resilience. And collective resilience is, you know, things like working well together, having a similar belief system, having a sense of family pride. And so I think personally, resilience pertains to families and to individuals. And I don't think you can talk enough about it. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that that makes a ton of sense. I mean, we, you know, as, as an accounting firm that offers multiple business practices, different service offerings, typically you think that things lie in just the quantitative aspects, you know, what, you know, how, what percentage of our overhead is salaries, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, we, we also harp on culture as an organization so much. Families, it sounds like, you know, also have a culture. Oh, I mean, I can feel it in my family, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure that's so, so, understanding the way that interacts and the way they communicate, I mean, is a huge piece of it, not just the, the ones and zeros, you know, of the, of the accounting world or the technology that they're using. So we deal with the typical things like the integrated financial planning. That's what you would assume we right. deal with here, but family office services involves a family continuity piece too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that deals with things like family shared values and enhancing communications and educating family members. But basically, at the end of the day, when I talk to high net worth individuals about what keeps them up at night, it's they want their children to be well adjusted and content. Sure. I mean, just like anybody, they want their children to be well adjusted and content. And you might think it might be easier for a high net worth person to be that way, but their lives have a lot of complexity sure. and, you know, they need just as much resilience, if not more than the next. Have you guys ever heard of the book, The Price of Privilege? I have yes. not. I it is one of my favorite books. And this woman, Madeline Levine, actually collects the research that shows there's a lot of research that shows that children of affluent families actually have higher, significantly higher levels of anxiety and depression. And the boys have significantly higher levels of acting out in terms of addiction, you know, <clears throat> drug use, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's like one of those things that you don't want to have to rate someone's stressors because stressors are stressors, right. but you're totally right that like money does not in any way create any kind of buffer against the need yeah. for resilience. Well, that's, I think when we spoke last, we were talking about the book Answered for Meaning by Victor yeah. Frankel. And I saw that you mentioned that on your website. So mm -hmm. I was fired up that it worked out that I was just finishing that before we were going to get a chance to talk. But one of the things that I think is, is paramount at least when, when trying to, you know, discuss how difficult people have it is, is that it's all relative, right? right. So if everyone has a scale of one to 10, 
of the worst things they've dealt with. A number nine for one person is the same as a number nine for a high wealth person, regardless yeah. of regardless yeah. of what lens you're looking at these you know these difficulties through. It's completely relative. So the worst thing I've ever dealt with is the same way. I felt the same way about that is the worst thing you've ever dealt with. Right. You know, but it's, a, it's such a good thing to point out because people feel like they don't have a right to their emotions. And this sure, actually was yeah. really interesting in the cancer world is that people who didn't have as bad of a diagnosis as someone else <clears> felt <throat> like they didn't have a right to be upset or complain. And so it's one of the first things we would do is exactly what you just just did, Jack. It's like your experience is your experience and your fear or your anger or your sadness, it's all valid. It's all real for you. And it doesn't really do anyone any good to compare to right. other people. Where does that come from? Is that just a, a competitive nature in us to try and you know compete in terms of not only we try to compete on the, the level of success we have, but also the amount of BS I've had to deal with? You know, I mean, is that... Does that stem from competition? Do you have any idea? I mean, I just think we can't help it. We're social beings. And so right. we, we always are looking around and comparing ourselves to others. But really, most of the time, it's not serving us. Sometimes it serves us because we can find people we admire and people we want to be like and people who inspire us. But often we're doing it and we're negatively judging ourselves. Sure. For whatever reason, we're not at it. We're not, you know, living up to what else, you know, everyone else is doing. Right. Well, and I think that's got a, that has a great connection to, I forget exactly what lesson it is, but the importance of, because I went through a period in my life where, you know, I, I think in middle school, I really cared about what people thought about me a little bit mm -hmm. to the point where it, it paralyzed mm -hmm. me in a sense. And then in high school, it was 180. I don't care what mm -hmm. anyone thinks about me. I am who I am. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And you're wrong for, for thinking that, you know, I'm doing anything incorrectly. But then one of the lessons in your book is actually understanding that the lens that other people see us through is still really important to be aware of, you know, so that we can, we can understand how we're presenting ourselves because that's going to in turn affect the feedback we get from others, right? If you're coming I off mean, abrasive, I mean, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the biggest blind spots people can have is not actually accurately understanding how they come across to others. And so, like you said, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to change your behavior, but if you are shy and that's coming across as arrogant, that's probably not serving you, you know, sure. if you're, and so a lot of times that's what happens is we just don't quite understand that. Like, for example, I was just talking with one of my college clients the other day and she had had this self-awareness. She was like, Oh, when I walk into a room, my first response is, well, these people may not like me. They probably already have enough friends. They don't, they don't need another friend. So she gets defensive and she pulls back. And so she seems really standoffish and aloof, yeah. aloof when she yeah. doesn't want to at all. She just right. is so hoping someone will be her friend. But so she actually, when she had this realization, she went the next week and tried. She was like, I'm just going to try to remember that everyone feels a little bit of this and I'm going to go first and initiate and be really friendly and put it out there. And literally in one week, she was like, this is a superpower. Like walking into a room like that. It was so cool. So it's just that self-awareness, you know. Of Absolutely. Well, that we had a conversation the other week with our shareholder for Human Resources, our HR shareholder. And her and I, I mean, great conversation. We had a blast with Steph. And we kind of just discussed that, exactly that, you know, that you walk into a room and, and 
you think you're coming off a certain way. You know, I, I personally, I use self-deprecating humor all the time because I think it's funny and I think it kind of, you know, drops everyone's guards. It's like, okay, great. But I've also noticed sometimes it's off-putting in the sense that, okay, whoa, hey, he's lacked some confidence. I'm like, no, I promise. I promise that's not it at all. So it's kind of, it's, it's hot. Now, do you fight that urge to, to be that way? Or do you communicate to people what you actually want to convey? I mean, that's something I battle with, right? I mean, I really think it's like find someone who you really, really trust, yeah. who only has your best intentions and really, you know, is, is sure. just a good friend or family member, whoever it is, and have that conversation with them. Because, right. you know, it, until you really hear how someone else's ex- experiences you, you can't quite know. Maybe sometimes you do want to fight it. Maybe some situations it's perfectly fine because people get you and know you and you're just going to, you know, run yep. with it. So we kind of got off on a little tangent here on, on a specific rule or, or lesson, but you've got 47 lessons in your book. Do we need to employ them all the time? Are these things that you can work on one at a time? I mean, how do these work to help us build resilience, I guess? So, I mean, it's so interesting listening to what Lisa said, because a lot of the things that Lisa said about, you know, interpersonal skills and how you build family resilience, they're very similar to what my model, like how my model works. And so, I mean, not to get too in the weeds, but just, you know, Lisa mentioned values, like being really clear about what your values are is important in resilience. Part of resilience is self-esteem, right? Is feeling good about yourself. And so one of the ways you can do that is to be really clear about what matters to you and then live up to that, you know, live your life in alignment with your values. And then no matter what anyone else is doing, you're going to be like, oh, okay, well, at least I'm, I'm that, at least I'm good in that way. You know, strengths is another one, you know, strengths, a lot of times when I, especially when I ask kids, I think it's interesting when I ask about inner strengths, they say things like, you know, determination and honesty and courage. And those are fantastic, but strengths are also things that just come easy that you're just naturally good at. And so like living your life in your strengths is also a way to have self-esteem. So Again, like, do you have to employ all of these skills in the book? No, but they pull from getting your needs met, understanding your values, living in your strengths, having good interpersonal skills, which one of the ones that you just mentioned is understanding how you come across to others, Mm -hmm. having emotional intelligence. You just have to be able to understand what causes your emotions and then how your emotions impact you. So then you can control yourself. So you won't just be at the mercy of your emotions. And forgive me if, if this is clear to everyone else but me, but how, how does the book differ from your method, right? I mean, I, I look so at the method in the book. Yeah. So my method is basically this model that it's, it's on my website, but it's like a circle and it has those things I was mentioning, like your needs and values, strengths, and your beliefs. So like, it really helps to have a self-awareness of those aspects of yourself, right? And then you want to make sure that you're living your life accordingly. But you also have to have a certain number of skills. You have to have good interpersonal skills, which you can learn. All of these things you can learn and build. You can learn emotional intelligence. And then I really think the most important thing, if there's one thing I want people to take away, it's that this thing that I call inner wisdom, that like place inside of you where you just feel what is right and what is good for you, whether you call it your gut, you know, your instinct, your intuition, that that is actually 
your most valuable asset as a human being. And I, we do not put enough emphasis on that. We don't really teach our kids a lot of the time. And so people end up, you know, using just intellect alone, but your mind is not always your friend. You know, just because you believe something does not mean it is true or serves you. So my method pulls from all of these pillars and the book what I tend to do in my life, unfortunately, is I tend to write, you know, too much. There's like so much in my head and there's so much that I've already written that it's like, you know, I could give a graduate level course on it. So with this book, I was trying to say, if I can just take these bite-sized things that when you read it, you're like, oh yeah, I knew that. I got that. I already know that. But when you take them all together, they pull from this curriculum that, you know, we've done four clinical studies with researchers from Duke. We've done two randomized control trials. So we have real data that shows that, you know, even when people were dying. So we worked in one of our studies, we worked with women with advanced breast cancer. Their disease had metastasized and they were going to die. But when they learned these skills, they actually perceived their quality of life as better across everything we were studying, distress, depression, anxiety, PTSD. So my point with that book is that if you can, if you just have a minute or two, you can get these in your head and it just reminds you what's important and you can start doing it today. And the ones that you need will, they'll come up. They'll, you know, you'll notice when they come up, you don't have to memorize the book or read it all in one sitting. It's just there for you. Right. Well, and you mentioned, I forget exactly how it was worded, but I can't find it right now, but it was, you know, we believe things, therefore they're true, as opposed to things being true, therefore we believe them, right? So obviously that shows that, you know, our mind sometimes trying to think through things, not, you know, not only do we not have the time to think through things all the time, you know, always, but just because we think through it in our heads and it makes sense to us doesn't mean it's really it's a right action. Well, I mean, because think about it, you know, we pick up beliefs from the authority figures in our lives. And when, when an authority figure, especially when you're young, tells you something, you just, you don't even really question it a lot of the time. Maybe you get to be a teenager or you get in college, you start questioning things. But the interesting thing about beliefs is I always picture it sort of like, it's like a mesh covering that it's like, like glasses that you're looking through, but literally when you look out into the world through that lens of beliefs, you only see evidence for what you already believe. Right. Believe The other evidence, which is there, like goes through the holes. You literally don't see it, but it's there. I mean, think about how many people have tons of evidence for beliefs that are different than yours. There's it's evidence like for it. Yeah, it's, right. it's like politics and religion. It is like exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, so the point is like when you realize that you have a belief that maybe doesn't serve you, you actually can choose a better feeling belief, but you it takes effort and a little bit of discipline to then go find evidence for it because it's a whole different way of looking at the world, you know? And sometimes it starts with looking at someone else and being like, oh, well. I'm doing a lot of parenting stuff right now. And some people are just like, the teenage years are awful. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, maybe they are for you, but then maybe you could look at someone else and be like, wow, you know, that person actually seems to really enjoy being a parent to her teenagers. I wonder if that could be true for me. So, you know, just making a crack for the possibility of evidence of something different. Well, and, and I think that right there, you know, the idea that one person has a horrible experience throughout their parenting of their, you know, children when they're in their teenage years, another looks like they're having a great time. I think I go back to, you know, Victor Frankl's book that, 
even in the worst parts of, and for people that don't know Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, it explains and describes his experience in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. So obviously the worst, worst experiences of human history and parts of, or, you know, part of human history, but one of the founding things in his book is that even in that scenario, something we look at as the worst possible place for humans to experience tragedy, the one thing they had, you know, they didn't have food, they didn't have shelter, they didn't have clothing, but the one thing they had was the control over their attitude. It was so many years ago that I read that book, but yeah. I literally have this visual in my mind of he describes a scene where, you know, he's just starving and freezing and there's a guard. I think he just like hit him with a gun or something. You know, he's like mm -hmm. on the dirt road thinking like he's got nothing. But in his mind, he carried this picture of his wife and his love for his wife. And it was just this little special thing that he carried inside of him that kept him going. It was like, this guy can't take away this love that I have. And we do have, we all have places inside of our heads that we can choose to carry the things that inspire us or not. Right. So I love that you bring that up. That book is such a powerful book. Oh, I had a blast reading and it. I bought it probably a year ago and just finally, you know, a month ago decided to pick it up. And I said, this is a short book. You know, I just have trouble keeping my focus on it, which is why yours was great. You gave me pictures. I mean, you gave me, <laughs> you gave me all kinds of stuff. I was able to take a break from a page and look at pictures. So, I mean, I think anymore, and the sad truth is I think anymore that's, you know, a reality is people's ability to pay attention to a book for a prolonged period of time. But it was a really good experience reading that book. I would suggest anyone read it. You know, it, it's interesting. When my kids were little, Chris and I used to give them timeouts. You know, that was kind mm -hmm. of the thing back then when they were having a meltdown, they get a timeout. But in your book, you talk about really, you know, us big people can take timeouts too, just, you know, when you're angry or when you're stressed or whatever. And I think you know, to help you get grounded. So can you maybe explain a little bit about well, that, how that equates to resilience? Yeah. So, I mean, again, resilience is about being able to take a hard situation and not just white knuckle it and get to the other side, but actually use the experience to become a better, stronger, happier, more fulfilled version of yourself. So that's what I think resilience is. And so, you know, one of the things about like really strong emotions like anger is that well, all negative emotions, they really have important messages for us about what we need, you know, how we can take care of ourselves. But a lot of us learn that negative emotions, especially anger, you know, I'm a, I grew up in the South, you know, it's not ladylike to be angry, you know, boys don't cry, girls don't be angry, those kind of things. So a lot of people just learn to either stuff their emotions or you know, explode, but not really think well, because when you're in the middle of a really strong negative emotion, you cannot think constructively. You just yeah. can't. And so I always think like walking away, but promising to come back. And then when you've calmed down and done anything to make yourself feel better, I mean, there's a million things that can make you feel better if you want to, then come back and actually think through that. You know, what was it? A lot of times anger is telling us I deserve better. I deserve to be treated better than this. You know, a lot of times sadness is telling us this is something or someone who's really, really important to me. When you can really deconstruct it and look at, well, so what do I need here? How can I take care of myself here? I mean, anger in an argument is always a good one, right? Because you have no control over someone else, but you do have control over 
what you're going to say to them, what kind of boundaries you're going to try to have to them with them, what you're going to do if they won't, you know, meet your needs or, you know, comply with your boundaries, but you're never going to be able to do any of that in the moment. I mean, I don't care. I do this for a living and I still get mad. And that is not the time for me to think my best. I have to walk away. Sure. Well, now, since we're on the topic of negative emotions or negative feelings, you know, I'm a firm believer that, like you said, I mean, I'm probably going to just repeat what you exactly said. And everyone's going to say, yeah, thanks, Jack. Kristen already said that. But when I'm experiencing something, I like to think back to, this might sound goofy. I mean, I could sometimes be out there, but what we would do as humans before, you know, civilized society, right? Break it down to your basic needs, food, shelter, you know, reproduction, and, and figure out what is driving those emotions you're feeling. Anxiety back then was a good thing because you don't want to get eaten by a lion, right? It's anxiety now for me is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And, you know, maybe, maybe I don't wake up with anxiety, but it's what gets me to maybe put in 30 more minutes at the end of the day, because I want to get ahead of my next day. And so I just see, and I've got personal examples of this personal family examples of, of people that, that run away from negative emotion because it feels bad. It's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Reflect on it. What's it telling you you need to do? And then try and mitigate that. I opened up your book to skill number 31, which is, I love this, is learn four ways to interrupt a downward spiral. Yeah. And it's the, the, you know, the idea of thought, emotion, what your body and, and what your behavior is. I mean, I think those are huge and that you can interrupt it at any point. You don't have to yeah, be, I like you don't have to be before the negative thought to mm-hmm. interrupt your behavior. You can catch yourself after the negative thought and after your emotion and, and maybe just adjust your behavior. So I love that. But I mean, What's your thought on today's environment and the way we approach negative emotion? Okay, remind me to come back to the four yes. ways of interrupting a downward spiral. I, I threw a lot out there. Yeah. <laughs> but I love, I really love what you said about anxiety in particular, because our young people today, well, there's tons of anxiety everywhere, yeah. but uh, there's so much anxiety in young people, middle school, high school, college age kids. And I focus a lot of my private practice on high school and college age kids just because I love them. There is so much anxiety. But Jack, the way you talked about anxiety is super interesting because not all anxiety is bad. Part of it you can use to motivate yourself. So you have to know yourself and you have to explore what's going on to see where you can have some control, which brings us to the four ways of interrupting a downward spiral. Because when you realize that emotions are caused by thoughts, so it can feel to people like emotions just overtake you and you're sort of at the mercy of them and there's nothing you can do. But when you realize that, oh wait, there's this whole cluster of thoughts that is really that are driving this emotion for me. And if I can calm down enough to analyze those thoughts, that's where I can start to take control of what's going on. So it's just helpful to use an example. So I can read your example from the book if you like. Yeah, will you do that? That'd be great. That'd be perfect. So it says, if your thought is, I am failing as a parent, you think to yourself, gosh, I'm really, really not doing well as a parent. Then your emotion might be that you're feeling worried or demoralized in which your body might feel tense or maybe you get a headache. That's your physical reaction to it. And then your behavior could be a short-tempered, indecisive moment where you act out or you don't follow through as the adult that you feel like you need to be. So that's the example you give. So I think that gives it, breaks it down perfectly. So perfect. And so when you, we realize that like you could look at the thought, if you wanted to feel better, you could say, well, I am failing as a parent. Is that, you know, you could totally work that if you wanted. I personally, I think 
working the thought is the hardest place. It's the maybe the most important, but it's not always the first place to go because it's not easy. So if you really just want to feel better, there are things that just make you feel better. Like for me, it's going for a run, you know, or uh, it's anything like moving my body. But, you know, there's like songs make people feel better. These things seem silly, but they're actually really important. Like when you use distraction intentionally to feel better because you know you're not thinking well, but you're going to come back and think later, you find that there's a whole repertoire. Like I have some memories that I just have in my head that when I want to feel better, I'm like, I'll just pull out a memory and like give myself 30 seconds to like put myself back in that spot, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's emotional things you can do. There are the thought things you can do where you can just like lean in the direction. You can't lie to yourself. If you're thinking you're failing as a parent, you can't suddenly be like, I'm the greatest parent ever. I'm nailing this parent thing, but you can be like, okay, hold on a second. I'm a highly intelligent person. I've learned other things before. Mm-hmm. Parenting is a set of skills. I know I can get better at this. And or also, think to someone and say, well, they did it. I certainly totally. can. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Totally. And you can also think my favorite piece of parenting, not that this is a parenting podcast, but is the idea that you really only have to be good enough. Right. Like there's, you just, you don't want to be the perfect parent. You only want to be good enough because you want your kids to have to build a little resilience because you're not perfect. Right. But anyway, so you could change your thoughts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a good one, right? right. Um, and you know, the behavior thing is interesting because like a lot of the behaviors are things also that would kind of just be emotional, like going for a run would be a behavior. But I, I always put in the bucket of behavioral <laughs> ways you can feel better is to turn your lens on someone else, like help someone else. You know, like when you do something and you help someone else, all of a sudden your stuff doesn't feel as bad, you know? So that's always one, but that's really the point is that you can go in because your thoughts cause your emotions, which show up in your body and drive your behavior. And it is a cycle and it spirals up together and it spirals down together. I have a colleague that I guess her, her baby's maybe almost one now. That's crazy. I guess it would have been a year ago that I helped babysit, which is crazy that she let me help babysit. It was great. <laughs> Got a lot of trust in her. But anyway, she was explaining to me that, you know, sometimes she'll be, you know, rocking her baby to sleep and she will not stop crying. Right. And so I'm sure that invokes a very, very negative emotion feeling just like she can't do it. We're not good at this thing. And what the, what she was told in, in parenting classes was set your baby down in their crib and walk away. Right. And I think that's a pretty direct example, obviously, because you have the most control in that situation over what you do in terms of handling your child. You have no control over that child crying, maybe. Right. And I think that's a huge piece is the difference between thinking, okay, do I have any control here or do I have no control here? And if I don't, I'm not going to worry about it. But the things I can control, I need to make sure I do. Well, I mean, again, you make two really good points. One is resilience is really about looking within for what is in my control. You know, the opposite of a resilient person is a victim, someone who just really always feels like it's everything else. There's nothing I can do. But resilient people are like, what is in my control? What's an action step I can take? And The second thing that you bring up there is, you know, the idea of, I always love the visual of on an airplane, you're supposed to put your mask on before you put your child's mask on if you're a parent. And the point is, is like, if we don't take care of ourselves, if we don't make our own needs a priority in our lives, we really get to a point where we have nothing left to give. 
And, but, you know, especially parents, but, you know, a lot of people are just the caregiver type people in their families, you know, and they, they're that they'll just give and give and give and put their own needs on the back burner until they're depleted and they can't even name what their needs are. And it's just not sustainable to live like that. Sure. It wasn't until I really understood making the distinction between what I can control and what I can't control. It wasn't until then that I started to hear it more and more in people's complaints and people's issues and, and people had, you know, what are you mad about? Oh, this, 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 and this. I said, we just named four things that you have no control over. Why are you allowing this to still grasp your mind and cause you, which takes me to another one, which is forgiving people. I mean, I could, this is great. I just (laughs) read it all, but the idea that someone causes harm to you so yes, they are the perpetrator of that instant, that time. But if you continue to hold those negative feelings against that person, you're then doing it to yourself, right? So it's like so the name of that the name of that skill is forgive others as an act of self care. Yes, yes, right. Because yes. it is exactly what you're saying. I mean, yes, it's it's you know it's it's great if in an altruistic way you feel like giving that to someone. That's I'm not saying that's not good, but I am saying that you know. Someone can wrong us in some way, but every time we keep that alive in ourselves, we are doing that to ourselves. And I mean, look, it's hard. I've been resentful in my life. I've held grudges before. I'm not saying it's easy, but at some point you get to the point where you're like, I am carrying this around. Like this thing happened a while ago. I am choosing to allow this to negatively impact my life today. And I don't want to do that anymore. Absolutely. I'm really curious. And this might be a Huge pivot, but I'm really curious to hear your experience. I mean, you mentioned Navy SEALs, you mentioned police officers. What has your experience been like working with those different groups of individuals that honestly are pretty similar to business leaders, business owners, CEOs, in the sense that they are looked at as being the most in control. They're looked Mm -hmm. at as being the ones that that never have issues, the most resilient, the strongest. I mean, how how is that trick? You know. People really want to have real conversations about what's actually going on inside them, inside their heads, inside their minds, inside, like we said, you know, it's in your mind, but it's also, you feel it emotionally and you feel it in your body, right? And so when you carry around these stresses and you never talk about them, it just gets bottled up and bottled up and bottled up. And so I find that, you know, some of these guys, they weren't all guys. But it's more common for women to have outlets to talk about their emotions than it is still in this day and age, you know, for men to have that. And just having the freedom and safety to just name it and like be real and not have to be all put together and perfect. I get some of my best phone calls from men who are just so appreciative of having had the opportunity to just be real and like talk about their emotions. Absolutely. I've certainly experienced before, you know, the needing an outlet and then it, and then it materializes in a potentially negative way. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost energy that, that you feel the need to let out. And it's not like consciously you say, I need to keep this in. I need to keep this in. It's not having a constructive activity to, that was one thing I was told in high school. I mean, I was, you know, my parents, if they hear this daily, they will second this as well. I was a bit of a trouble child, right? I got into trouble all the time. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I was told, I was told so many different things. You can't do this. You can't do that. This is in your, this is in your, you know, your genetics, blah, blah, blah. 
finally, I went to a family and, and marriage therapist here in town that my folks had gone to years and years ago. They went to a couple of times and my dad said, hey, maybe, maybe go, you know, see how this is. And she helped me understand that I just really sucked at time management and dealing with stress. Right. And so it was being able to reflect on those situations. So constructively have outlets for that energy and those emotions. Which is huge. Because otherwise it's just all up there rattling around in your head, feeling mm-hmm. stressful. But like, if you don't take it out and look at it, like all of those things that are causing you stress, then they just become like, you don't really know what you can do to take care of yourself. And so people don't take care of themselves. So, you know, they drink, I drink too. I'm not like, I'm just saying, but like, they drink too much. I mean, I'm all for the glass of wine, but no, but you know, I mean, maladaptive coping, right? Right. And if it's not like some great mystery, a lot of times there's not some big, deep, dark thing under there, but like shining a light on what's real for you and what's causing you to stay awake at night. It just, helps. I mean, my husband, when I was in graduate school, I had to go to couples counseling. And so I was like, well, honey, we have to go to couples counseling for school. He would never have gone if it was not because I had to do it for school. He loved it. He loved it. And then he ended up going to therapy, which he wouldn't mind me saying, you know, on his own too, because all of a sudden getting to say what you really believe and like think through and process this Mm -hmm. and like look at is the way I'm thinking about this really, does it even make sense? Is it serving me? Is it like hurting my relationships? You know, it's just, it's just helpful. Well, <laughs> it's just no way you, around it. You brought up drinking and it was something that was kind of in the back of my mind, but I look back to, I was in a fraternity, went to University of Nebraska, had a great time, but you know, there was a part of it where, you know, you would get together with some of your fraternity brothers, or even I had tons of friends, you know, from other houses, I mean, all over campus, things like that. But you would have these experiences where you get out together, you start drinking, and then all of a sudden your conversations become so much more vulnerable in the sense that, you know, you're with your buddies, so it's all fine, and we get to maintain our masculinity, but you wake up the next morning with a friendship that you're like, wow, that is such a deeper friendship. That's not really necessarily a healthy way of forming that, right? (laughs) So I'm thinking back to, and, and whether this is for men or women differently, but I know from at least my experience, a lot of the emotional outlet happened when, you know, when there was a heavy drinking involved and and it it gave you the confidence to have real down to earth conversations with people that were also going through it. Because another thing that we talked about on our phone call last time was loneliness. I think loneliness is, is the worst possible emotion. I mean, I think, I think thinking that you're the only person going through something is potentially like you said last on our phone call, the biggest killer. And even, you know, yes, thinking that you're the only person going through something, but even just now in COVID, the thing that I hear the most is the loneliness. And that's, people know that everyone else is feeling that way too, but it's still just like, we are social beings and, and just getting to like interact with people and, you know, whether it's like just laughing or whether it's talking about something important to you. I mean, it's just not the same for people. It's not the same level of connection, you know, doing it via Zoom or whatever. And so loneliness now is really exacerbated, but it all is always there. I mean, I actually, like I said on the phone, I think loneliness is maybe the single biggest thing that we fight in this country in terms of like mental, you know, like stressors for people is just loneliness. 
which is the irony because, you know, it seems like we're all connected via social media. But I think that just exacerbates the loneliness. And so that's why it's so important to be resilient. And, and the fact that we have this, you know, this, this body of science now that says we can build our resilience mm-hmm. to me is just, it, it's, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm going to share this with families now because it's interesting that family offices and are employing a lot more psychologists and therapists and life coach now you know they used to be hiring the accountants and the attorneys and it's kind of come full circle and you know why is that I think the good thing is because you know younger people now you know they're maybe a little bit more vulnerable and they're Mm -hmm. able to be better in touch with their feelings and say hey I'm open I'm open to talking about myself or talking to a therapist so you know I think it's great you know that we have resources like you have out there Kristen and I'm forwarding all your information no absolutely (laughs) I will be I will certainly be you know passing this on like I said I I spoke to my mom she said well give me that book when you're done my girlfriend just asked me for it as well she said hey when you're done with that can I read it and then also my boss yeah and it's on Amazon go buy it yourself yes Yes. I love you guys I just think it's important. I mean, I've, I've, I've found my most success in terms of my personal success or in my job or whatever, when I'm vulnerable, right. When I allow myself, Hey, listen, this is who I am. This is how I'm feeling right now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a concept that I think is a struggle for some people in the professional world, because they feel that they need to keep this veil on that, that they have everything under control that, you know, everything is calculated and everything is, is deliberate and, it's not all the time. I mean, but think about time, also you know. think about when you in when you meet people or you're just becoming friends with someone. You know, the people who seem that way, there's it's like hard to get in there. But someone yeah. who opens up and shares something real, that's when we like them. Like we oh, yeah. we are attracted to vulnerability, but people don't realize that unless they think about it. But it's real. I mean, I always say it's like I end up loving my clients. I, I just love them. And I guess it's just because I'm in this situation that's such an honor where people are sharing their, like the darkest stuff that they're ashamed of, but like, we're all human. And it's like, I love them for that, you know? And I think there's some of that in all of us. Like most people are good people who just like have positive intentions for the people that they meet, you know? And they, absolutely, yeah. Well, and another thing, and just maybe different topic, but you know, people being vulnerable. And my thing is I want people to, to understand the outlets. I, we've talked about some outlets. You've got amazing skills. I said, I guess I called them lessons or skills that you can, you know, use daily. There's also, oh gosh, is it in Utah? And you, you're involved with this, right? Where they take veterans on, on extended camping yeah. trips to help combat PTSD. Can you talk about that? Cause I think that's, I think there's a lot in that, you know, a lot, if we broke that down into why that works, I'm sure, obviously, you know yeah. why it works, but. Yeah, I met this veteran a few years ago. You know what, I, don't, I really, he's told this story publicly, so he wouldn't, I mean, he told it publicly when I was there. So um, he talked about how he was literally standing in his garage and he had a wife and a young daughter at the time with a rope around his neck that was tied to the ceiling. Wow. Literally the moment of, do I do this or not? It gives me goosebumps. Right. And, um, Absolutely. 
And he decided not to do it. And like from that moment, it he realized that like the idea of when you're on a mission with your, he was a Marine, with your, whatever you call it, group of Marines, you have a common purpose, you have a common goal, you have this pack that is like full of stuff that you have to carry. And you're on this like journey with a beginning, middle and an end. And he was like, you know, there's something about replicating that idea in the wilderness where you literally are like carrying your, your everything that you need. You're going for 30 days. You're leaving behind the life that is all normal and all messed up for you. And you're going on this journey with a beginning, middle and an end with other people who share your same experience you know, that just felt like you can reset not just your mind, but your body, you know, like what are you, not even just what you're putting in, but just with exercise and all those things. And so, so he is the guy who started that actually. And he's an amazing person. I just thought that made so much sense to like replicate being on a mission, Sure. but the, now the mission is <laughs> to kind of rebuild your sense of self. Well, I th- and you say rebuilt, that was the exact thought that I had where you can go out and, you know, strip everything down in terms of, you know, external forces, you know, technology, people, everything, go out into really an environment where you're the only one in control, right? I feel like in that environment, you have, you have very clear things you can control, right? A rock slide or a, a weather event or something pretty crazy. And, and then you have things that you can control, which is how do I weather that? And then coming back to society, it probably makes sense that you can add the emotions and add the external things as you see that you need them. Right. I mean, I, I have, I think about, and this is, this might be hard, a hard analogy to make, but I've got my, my bathroom sink, right. I've got so much crap on it. I use probably three things, deodorant and, you know, some cologne and a toothbrush, (laughs) but I've got so much crap on it because I, will use something and set it down and use something and collect all of this stuff that's just noise. And it's good once in a while, just dump it all out. And then the next day, start from scratch. And next thing I've got three or four things sitting there that are actually important to me. So I'm sure that, I mean. I like that that analogy. I think that's really great. (laughs) I was thinking about it this morning. That's why I brought it up. I need to clean it off. (laughs) But no, I, I, because I'm a big outdoors and I love, you know, hunting, fishing, hiking, all that. And it's not only a great way to, you know, think about yourself, but also just not think about anything at all. You know, this is going to, this might sound harsh actually, but what just flashed in my mind as you were saying that is that sometimes it's good to think about that with people as well, because sometimes we allow people to stay in our lives out of politeness or just out of obligation. And I'm not saying, you know, just you have to be rude, but you know, if you are intentional about the people who you choose to spend most of your time with, it's a huge resilience factor, you know, because like you were saying before, like you notice it when people are just negative, you know, and you notice it when people actually tear you down. And so it's just an interesting every once in a while in your life to get really intentional about, well, who am I choosing to spend my time with? And are they people who lift me up or are they people who drag me down? I think that came into play during COVID because we couldn't get together with everybody. You couldn't go out to a restaurant with just anybody and you had to be real selective about who you, you know, engaged with. But I think resilience is kind of summed up in this, this Maya Angelou 
quote, it says, if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. And I think that oh, that's yeah. really what you talk about in your book. That's having resilience because it's accepting the things we can't change and then having a good attitude about the things that we can. So, well, and what's that? There's another quote, you know, help me. It's like a prayer, I believe. Help yeah. me accept. The serenity prayer. Yeah, the serenity yeah. prayer. Help yeah. me accept yeah. the things that I cannot change. Help me adjust the things I can and help give me the wisdom to know the difference between the two. Yeah. I mean, that's. Yeah. So I think my goal is going to be to be a more resilient person. And I think if I could do one thing as a family office advisor, well, I would like to, you know, help other individuals and families be more, more collectively resilient. Absolutely. And employ some, some great skills along with that, which we have a great foundation for. Well, you know, Lisa, we did that. You know, we put together a package for people like you. Well, you and I have talked about that. But mm-hmm. after that PP, PPI me, <laughs> webinar, yeah, PPI, but like webinar, just, yeah. to, just so that, you know, people who care can, ha- can yeah. go once a month and get some videos and emails just to send out to your families. And they're just simple. We in families, because I love that you bring up families so much because families, the culture of families is maybe the most important resilience factor that you can alter to help, you know, your kids become resilient. So we always think with any of our parenting stuff that the conversation is really the most important thing. That's what that webinar was about. But it's just this idea that, you know, it's your greatest tool for connecting with your kids, for modeling good behaviors, for getting to know them. And so what we do in all of our stuff in the one that we do for other people like you who have families that you work with, but also in our parenting programs, we have two parenting programs, one for people who are divorcing and one for people who are not divorcing, but it's all little conversation starters. So just like my book is little bite-sized things, it's just helping parents have little short conversations at the dinner table, not, you know, big talks that you have to like pull up a chair and get all serious about, but just little conversations you can drop into your family culture that move the needle on resilience. I totally agree with you. I I really liked, I read, you know, a lot of your content. And one of the things that really resonated that I wish I would have known about when my son was a teenager and acting like Jack. (laughs) Acting like I used to act. (laughs) Acting like he used to act. You know, I wish I would have honored his feelings more. You don't have to agree with your kids' feelings, but you need to honor them and say, I hear you. Mm -hmm. And, And not say, oh, you know, yeah, I don't know why you're thinking like that and give it no credibility. I think I sometimes did, you know, when he thought, you know, hard rock music was like the coolest thing in the world. Sure. And, you know, some of the things you maybe don't think have the highest importance, but. You know, and I don't know if I say this enough, but I feel like my folks were so important for me because they just treated me like an adult, which is why it was, I think, the disappointment thing when you're when you're young or you're an adolescent and you experience your parents being disappointed, why it has so much mm. more of an impact than when your parents are angry because yeah. adults get disappointed in each other, right? Parents get angry at younger people. I mean, that mm. I feel like that difference when it's like, well, hey, I trusted you and you were... So that, I think, was always something that they gave me is treating me like an adult. So when I didn't make adult decisions, they're like, what are you doing? You know, I mean, where where was your head at? 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and also, like you said, Lisa, respecting my emotions to a degree until they were, until they were, you know, didn't make sense. But Kristen, you talked about, and I, you know, we, we were talking about outlets and ways to get energy out. And when we spoke last, you mentioned going to a comedy show. Was it in California? Because you yeah, were on, it was in LA. Yeah. You were on one of my favorite comedians' wife's podcast, Burt Kreischer's wife, Leanne. Yeah. I mean, that's, yep. can you, I got to talk about that again, because I kind of <laughs> geeked out a little bit when you mentioned that last time. Well, so says I've been on Leanne's podcast a bunch of times and yeah. I'm actually speaking with her later today, but I didn't know who Bert was. <laughs> so, I mean, I, when you go and they have a whole studio for their podcast because it's a right. video podcast. And um, when you go in the studio, there are all these crazy pictures of Bert because, you know, Bert never wears a shirt in his Right. And he's not, he's not physically fit. He is like all about the best. Does he look good? Uh, He looks like a stud. Come on. That is like the picture of what a man should look like. (laughs) So anyway, so Leanne invited me to this comedy show and I love comedy shows, but I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so we show up and it it was probably two or 3000 people in this beautiful theater in Los Angeles and you could just feel it from the minute you walked in that the audience like knew something great was going to happen. And it was two hours of seriously the hardest, hardest I have laughed. I don't ever remember laughing that hard. I mean, my husband and I like, it, it hurt. Like my face hurt, my stomach hurt just from laughing so hard for that long. That's he is amazing. I mean, I think that for society, and by the way, today, big announcement, Big Ten football is back, which is huge. <laughs> that, that is so cool. And, and, and it seems silly. And I understand people's issues with it in terms of, of COVID, but but when we look at the, and we could have a whole other podcast about this, but the the impact I think it has on our communities and our societies to be able to get together in a packed theater or a yeah. packed stadium and have a center, you know, one thing that we're focused on that's invoking positive emotions right. and, and laughing together. I and think it's such it's, a sense of community. That yes. Makes you, yeah. And it I helps you build your resilience. Yes, and the resilience is only <laughs> yes. going up. I mean, yeah. I just, I, I had to bring that up, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. I think this is a great conversation. I would love to have you back on. We can choose another topic for another time. It was anytime. a great time. You guys are great. Thank you. Maybe Thanks parenting for... or something. Yeah, parenting. For, I mean, for the anything. I mean, really, I wish I would have had your great advice when my kids were younger. I don't think I did terrible, but you always think you could do better. And so having all these great resources now is just so valuable to young people. So right. it's nice to be able to present that. Sure. You know, well, I know our audience is younger for this one, but if there is anyone who wants the parenting stuff, it's at McDermottMethod.com. They yes. will find two different parenting perfect yeah so mcdermottmethod.com you know your your book it takes two minutes are there other ways i know you have a is it a sunday self-care email that goes out i sent that out yesterday to all the ladies and i got a lot of good response what about the guys we could use some of that (laughs) you said it to me yeah yeah but no i i are there any other ways that that people can you know figure out or or get their hands well your method or so everything is at McDermottMethod.com, but one of the things that we are just now rolling out, which makes me really happy, is we're going to try to get this in schools. And so, yeah, so if anyone has a school that they would want to introduce us to, you know, reach out, let me know, because it's just simple, not the kind of thing where you have to 
hire an instructor or train an instructor or even like change your schedule, but just these simple conversation starters that actually any teacher can have. And just, sure. again, you see how, how they work bite size. Sure. Just trying to get as many people having those conversations as we can. Well, I know we've got schools in town that we work with. You know, my high school actually is a client of mine now or client of ours in less technology. So it's really fun. I mean, the community here in Omaha, I think is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The, their ability to keep people communicating and talking even beyond high school is great. So absolutely, we can send some people your way. You have to tell the Kreischers they've got some fans in Nebraska. I will definitely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so yeah, much. Thanks, it was great thanks talking for having to you. Me. Yeah, you have fun. a great rest of the day. So. All right, I'll come back anytime. Awesome, thanks. thanks. See All right, bye. You've reached the end of another episode of Let's Talk Business. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your podcast app, Spotify, or iTunes. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to make light.